So we have been looking at different women in the Bible and we've called this series Hidden Figures because the women in the Bible often are the ones that don't get a mention. The story this morning that we're going to be looking at is in John 4 and it's the story of the woman at the well. Uh, And actually this is a story that you might, if you've been around church for any length of time, you will have heard before and you will have heard different interpretations. There's so much in this encounter that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman. Uh, And if I'm honest, I kind of got myself tied up in knots as I was preparing, thinking about all the different layers and the possible meanings and the symbolism and the themes that are in this story. Um, So I've just chosen a few things to pick out as we go through the story, rather than try and cover everything uh, that comes up in it. Um, And I hope that something of what I share speaks to you today. Some of what I will touch on, we've talked about together before, but I just felt that this, as I read the passage, this is what jumps out at me for this morning. So John 4 verse 1 is where we're going to start. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. We're going to start there. So I don't know about you if you are a driver. Um, I love Google Maps And I, regardless of where I'm driving, even if it's around Bristol, I tend to put Google Maps on um, and I get ridiculed for not having any sense of direction, which is kind of true. (laughs) But the reason that I always put Google Maps on is because I really hate the thought that there might have been another quicker route or better route than the one that I'm currently on. And as you're sat in traffic and thinking, oh, especially in Bristol, there's so many ways to get to the same place. Um, So I always put Google Maps on regardless. And it really frustrates me when I'm sat in a car with someone who goes, I know the way that I'm most comfortable with and I'm going to go that way. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, oh, if we tried a different way and seen what Google said, we might have missed this 20 minute delay. Sorry if I've ever been in a car with you and thought that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes doing that gets me into trouble. So on Tuesday morning, I don't know if anyone uh, last Tuesday was trying to get along the ring road or anywhere really around Bristol. It was an absolute nightmare. And um, I was dropping Debbie Linton to work in Hembury. Did what I always do, put it in Google Maps. Google Maps said, if I go the normal way we go, it would take an hour longer than usual. Um, And so we ended up going a really weird way down the back of Winterbourne because I followed the sat-nav. Torrential rain, really awful weather. The sat-nav took us down a weird, tiny country lane Uh, got halfway down it and there was the hugest flood that went like right across really deep. Uh, I watched a Land Rover get stuck and not be able to get through. So we had to turn around and we actually did make it on time thanks to the other rerouted weird way. But sometimes going the quickest way isn't always the best way. If you put Judea to Galilee in Google Maps, the quickest route would be through Samaria. But most people, most Jews wouldn't go that way. They would go the long way around. They would go the way that they felt was a better way that they were more comfortable with. We've just read that Jesus went through Samaria. Did Jesus go that way because like me he hates the thought of there being a quicker route so he wanted to get there as fast as possible? Or was he making a point by going to that particular place, meeting the people that most Jews would avoid? Did he perhaps go knowing that despite it not being the most comfortable route, that was the way he was meant to go. That maybe it was worth breaking down the cultural barriers that existed at the time. So verse 5. He came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, 
near the plot of grounds Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Now here we've got a woman in the middle of the day. The fact that it says it's about noon is significant in this story, um, as you might know. Normally women would gather at this well at dawn or at dusk because it would be cooler. She's here in the heat of the day and she's alone. Normally women would go together because not only is that protection and safety, actually this well would have been a place of community, a place of friendship. So we know there's something wrong here because this Samaritan woman is there in the heat and not with anyone else. So it seems that she was an outcast, even among her fellow Samaritans. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. So Jesus acknowledges her. Most rabbis wouldn't even have spoken to their own wives in public, and they certainly wouldn't have interacted with a woman in this way. And here is Jesus talking to a Samaritan who is an outcast even among her own people. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So even the woman herself points out that it's not appropriate for Jesus to be addressing her in this way. And then they enter into this back and forth dialogue, almost a debate. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become like a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Give me this water so I won't get thirsty, and I won't have to keep coming here to draw water. She's missed the point. She thinks that he's just offered her some crazy magic water, and that once you've drank it, you'll never have to drink again. And she's like, wow, amazing, great, I won't have to come here on my own, in the middle of the day. Is she a bit stupid for thinking that that's what he meant? Or was there something about her situation that meant she wanted to hold on to even the slightest chance that she wouldn't have to endure that journey to the well again? Have you ever done that, clutched onto the possibility of something just because you hope so desperately it's true, even though really it can't be? He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you are now with is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. A typical reading of this passage that maybe you've heard before is that this woman was a temptress, that she slept around, uh, that she was an awful sinner who needed to be called out and confronted. And maybe there is some kind of truth in that reading of this. Perhaps it's also worth considering that women at this time were not allowed to initiate divorce unless it was extremely rare circumstances. And so it's possible that she perhaps was a widow or that men had divorced her. And it's worth acknowledging 
that being married and therefore part of a patriarchal household was extremely important for women at this time. It's important for their security, for their protection. It's impossible for us to know the circumstances of this woman or what had led her into this position. But maybe our judgment of this woman's character and her actions shouldn't be as harsh as we often allow it to be. The Samaritan woman represents otherness in many forms, by which I mean that she represents those who are positioned as inferior, as less powerful or dominant. First, she was a Samaritan, neither fully Jew or fully Gentile, not belonging to either and therefore other from both. Second, she was a woman in a culture where patriarchal rule made women the other. She was an outcast among her fellow Samaritan women, so even in her own group she was alienated. And it's that feeling of otherness that produces shame. And I think whatever that we know or assume from this story, it's very probable that that woman felt shame. Because shame is I'm other, shame is I'm different, shame is I don't belong, I don't fit in. It's the feeling of not of doing something wrong, but of being something wrong, feeling at the core that who I am is not okay, not wanting to tell anyone what I've done because I think it'll affect who they think I am. Shame is what fills the gap between what I feel about myself and about others, between the me that I am and the me that I want to be, the me that I ought to be. Shame is the separation between my social media highlight reel and my lowest moments of my backstage reality of I can't cope, I don't want to carry on. It's not wanting anyone to know who I really am. Shame is when I can't do it all and people can see that I'm failing. Shame is Adam and Eve just after they ate the fruit. At that moment their eyes were opened and suddenly they felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed together fig leaves to cover themselves. Shame is feeling I'll never be forgiven. Shame is feeling silenced. Shame eats up our insides. Shame is being exposed, feeling and realizing that I'm naked. Shame is when we're exposed and what we want to hide is revealed and we feel self-conscious and all we want to do is clothe ourselves. So we put up masks to hide masks of our job title, our family role, our social life, our clothes, our social media profiles, of being happy all the time, of being nice all the time, of trying to be perfect, of optimism, of pessimism, of apathy, of a busy schedule. And it's when people begin to see through these masks that we feel shame. Go, call your husband and come back. The Samaritan woman's mask begins to crack. She begins to feel exposed. I have no husband. She tries to readjust her mask. You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Jesus exposes her, peels back her mask. Shame needs three things to grow exponentially in our lives. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. If you meet it with empathy, it can't survive. Brené Brown said that. The way that Jesus interacts with the Samaritan woman can come across as harsh and blunt as we read it. 
But in revealing the truth in this way, he gets rid of the silence and the secrecy. He doesn't cast judgment and punishment upon her. Instead, as he exposes her, he also reveals himself. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. As we encounter Jesus, he doesn't cover over our shame and help us to readjust our masks. He meets us in our vulnerability with love and acceptance. I've tasted and seen of the sweetest of loves where my heart becomes clean and my shame is undone. Unconditional love that chooses not to avoid the hard path, but to go through it. A love that ultimately would go as far as to die for us in order that we might have life. A love that is for those who are other. A love that is for everyone. And what happens to Samaritan women as a result of her encounter with Jesus? She goes back to the town, free and empowered. She goes from being an outsider to someone integral to revealing Jesus to others. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we are no longer believing just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. I wonder if we can see ourselves in her story. When was the last time that you had an encounter with Jesus where you invited him behind the mask and allowed him to minister to you in his grace? We're going to go into a time of communion in a moment. And communion is a great place to have an encounter with Jesus to allow him to do that. I'm going to pray. God, I thank you for this story for the significance that it has. A woman who is on her own and is an outcast, even with her own people. And for the testimony that she's able to share as a result of her encounter with you. And God, I pray that you would uh, be meeting with us now in this next time as we go into communion. That we would be prepared to be vulnerable in front of you and allow us to be ministered to by you.